smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. Um, We're going to be in the book of Amos. So if you're typing it in, you're good to go. If you're looking for it in Scripture, all right, um, Daniel is kind of your closest anchor, one of the bigger books, and you'll go back to the right. Um, it's the, there's 12 books that end the Old Testament in there. They're all real short, um, and Amos is the third of those 12. So I'm going to go ahead and give you that information so that you can be looking for it. Um, so listen, the, the way we tend to preach here at Redeemer is that we, we start in a book and we just work our way through it um, chapter by chapter over the course of weeks or months. And so we have recently finished walking through First and Second and Third John. And we, we are going to jump in this morning into a prophetic book, one of the minor prophets, um, Amos. And there is all sorts of reasons not to do this, okay? Um, my week has alternated between Oh my word, what have we done? Okay? And this is going to be really good. Right? Um, and, and that's where I've landed. That this is going to be really good. Um, that we're, I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm excited to see some of the, 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 the difficulty in this book begin to fall away of, of looking at what's taking place. But we do this for a reason. Look, listen, I know it would be easier um, to move into a gospel, to move into a letter from Paul, um, to move into some of the, the stories of the Old Testament... But what we, if we believe that all of God's word is beneficial, that all of it is living, that all of it is valuable, that all of it has um, information pertaining to life and godliness for us, then we have to look at all of it. And we want to give it to you, right? We want to do the hard work of wrestling through books like this because we don't want you to have whole sections of scripture that you just skip, right? That maybe through your, your yearly reading plan, you'll read through it real quick and go, I don't know, right? Because our, our tendency is we're, we're more comfortable with the, the church letters. We're more comfortable with the gospels because even though there's some distance of a couple thousand years, we can see ourselves in it far more than we do in prophetic books, um, in Old Testament books like this. Um, the, the effort it's going to be worth it, okay? And listen, I, just up front, it's going to feel foreign. It's going to feel odd. We are talking about something that's nearly 3,000 years old, um, that is written in a, another language in Hebrew, that is prophetic, which is not something we do um, in our current culture a lot. It's poetic, right? And, and most of us aren't spending our week analyzing and enjoying poetry. Some of you are, right? But that's not the norm of our culture. Um, and, and if we're honest... We're not great with these type of books, right? Because there's a weightiness and a heaviness to them that can kind of just like sit on us. And, and what we like is typically on a Sunday morning, even if it's a hard sermon, that there's a bit of a bow put on it, and then we move on. And there will be some, these sermons are just going to build upon one another, and we're not going to get the finality and the conclusion that we want until we finish Amos. Right? He's not going, okay, have I given you enough? I'm going to back off now and tell you, here's what's great. It's, he, he's running hard through this book. Um, and so we just are going to have to be willing to, to sit with this a little bit. Um, I, I just encourage you to lean into it, right? Um, to, to trust that God is going to work, that His Spirit is going to move and use this. Um, so I, I'm going to read the first two verses of Amos 1. And this morning will feel a little 
different than a typical sermon. Um, when we're starting new books, um, what often happens is we just, the first one, we do a lot of intro, and it can feel a little bit more lecturous, but I, I promise we will, we'll, we'll get into it. Verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So the, the first thing I want us to note this morning simply is this, is who, who is writing this book? Um, and it's, it's Amos, okay? It's, this is not one that it's a hidden, like, we've got to figure it out. It's Amos. It tells us it's Amos. Um, Amos is a prophet. Um, it, if we turn over to chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, some of you are already going, okay, how long is this book? How long are we going to be here? Um, verse 14 and 15. Um, Amos speaks about himself for a moment. Amos answered and said, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So what we learn about Amos here is Amos did not grow up in a prophet's family. He was not a professional prophet in which there were. That This man was a, he, he was an arborist. He took care of trees and he was a shepherd. And then the Lord spoke and gave him a word. And, and ultimately, what, what Amos really gets are visions. Because look at what it says in verse 1. That the words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel. And much of the book of Amos is going to be visions that he saw that he is now delivering. Um, and so that, that language is intentional there. That he is from the area of Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. When was it written? So he gives us some, some clues here. He tells us that he served during the reign of Uzziah and of Jeroboam. Uzziah served from 790 to 740 B.C. Jeroboam served from 793 to 753 B.C. So most likely, um, from what we can gather, um, Amos' ministry was from roughly the year 760 to 755, somewhere kind of in that, that range. So he's, he's roughly 800 years prior to the life of Jesus. Okay? Um, so this is an, an ancient book, some 28, 2900 years old. He had a, a shorter ministry. Um, so what type of book is this? Uh, this is a prophetic book. It, it belongs to a group um, in Scripture. Of, it's called the Minor Prophets. And the Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Right, So it's after Daniel, you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those books right, that you're like, I, I know they're there, but which, what order they're in. Right, They're called the minor prophets. And they're not minor in their significance. They're called the minor prophets because they're short. Right, You have to flip through quickly because you, know, you can skip three of them in like two page turns. Okay? Um, and so Ezekiel... Isaiah and Jeremiah are three substantial books, and they're called the major prophets, not because they're more important, but because they wrote these significant, significant amounts. The minor prophets are these short, brief books. Um, they were viewed as a single book for the most part, like that you would turn and now spend time in the minor prophets. They were viewed as one. 
Amos is, him and Joel are the oldest, right? So he really sets the standard for what comes in, in a lot of the prophetic words. Like the, most of the topics that he's going to introduce, you're going to see repeated in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, throughout the minor prophets. Um, he is the first to use the term, the day of the Lord, right? That there's this, the great and terrible day of the Lord that is coming. Um, the book is prophetic. It's going to include poetry. It is going to include satire and sarcasm. It's going to have visions and oracles, metaphors, um, something you don't, we don't run into often, songs of doom, okay? Right? There's, there's some parts of literature here we just don't deal with on a real frequent basis, okay? Um, honestly, we don't, um, in, unless you really enjoy it, most of us don't read a lot of satire, right? Um, even though we would be a little more familiar with it. So who is Amos writing to? Amos is writing to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now listen, what, what some of you may or may not know is that after Solomon um, was king, um, shortly after the, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes that we see all the way back in Genesis, divided and two nations emerged there. And so the northern kingdom was known as, as Israel, only consisted of, of 10 tribes at that point. And the southern kingdom was the remaining two tribes, and it was called Judah. And so often we can get confused as we're reading through the Old Testament. We're saying, oh, well, who is Judah? Who is Israel? It's, it's the divided 12 tribes of God who have gone in their separate ways. Um, we can read briefly about this um, if you, in 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 25. So it tells us this. This is roughly 200 years before Amos. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. And then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah." All right, so you have Jeroboam who's saying, hey, I'll, I'm the leader of these ten nations, these ten tribes, excuse me. And we have the, but the capital and the temple is in Jerusalem, which is a part of the southern kingdom. And he's like, if my people continue to go down there to worship, they're going to eventually just say, why are we doing this? We should be under, we should be one nation, one, one kingdom again. And so here's what he does. Verse 28. So the king took counsel And made two calves of gold, right? You're thinking, we have seen this before. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Like he is literally doing the thing, right? That they were like nearly destroyed for. Is he makes two golden calves and says, they're the ones who took you up out of Egypt. Here, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to the temple. You're going to worship here in our country. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He made temples on high places. He appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites, who were the priestly line. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar, and he did it in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel 
the priest of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel. And he went up to the offering, the altar to make offerings. All right. Not a great start. Okay? And so the nations have divided. There's ten tribes in the north. There's two tribes in the south. And so Amos has been given a message, a word. He lives in the south. He's been given a message for the ten northern tribes. So he's going to leave Judah and go to Israel to deliver a message. Because what has taken place for the last 200 years has been false, cultic, pagan worship that is meant to look like worship to the true God. And they have not gone to the temple, and they feel like they are doing the right thing. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, where Jerusalem is in the south. So why? Why are we doing Amos? What's going on here? In this current period, right, 700s of B.C., is the Silver Age of Israel. Outside of David and Solomon, this is their greatest era. There is more stability and more wealth than they've almost ever had. Right? They had two kings, Uzziah and and Jeroboam, who have reigned for long, stable reigns. Assyria, who has been a thorn in the side of Israel, um, is relatively quiet for about 50 years. And so in the midst of this kind of like calm... With two long, stable rulers, wealth begins to amass. And peace begins to happen. And security begins to happen. And much like we do, they said, God's blessing us. Because we got money and we've got peace. And so there's very little like introspection going on as to is our worship honoring to the Lord or not. They're just saying, man, things are easy, and there is luxury, and there is ease, and there is comfort. And Jeroboam has expanded and consolidated the, um, the lands. He is in control of the trade routes, and wealth is amassing. And so in this assumption of blessing, some things begin to happen. Israel begins to presume upon the Lord. And Israel goes, look, God has intervened in human history and rescued us from the hand of Pharaoh, brought us up out of Egypt. When God acts in history, it's on our behalf. He's made a covenant with us. We are invulnerable. We cannot be beat. And there will be a day where all these other nations are going to be destroyed. And they're just right. They're literally looking, going, everything is perfect. Like, we have peace, we have money, um, you know, and God's on our side. And if someone wants to touch us, he's just going to wipe them out, he's going to destroy them. And they're presuming upon this, that their privilege means that they are protected, whether they are honoring to the Lord or not. They are professing religious, right? They, they say they believe they're walking with God, but in the fact they are doing ritualistic things at pagan altars, and are not honoring the Lord at all. But they think of themselves as being religious and walking with God. Right? Does this this not sound to some degree in the the area where we live, where people assume themselves to be religious, they think they're walking with God, but it's mere ritual. 
right? Like if, if, we're, if we're wondering whether Amos connects or not, Amos connects. Because he's writing to a people who think God is blessing us because look at our stuff. And we're religious, and so that must be why he's blessing us. Instead of looking to see whether they are honoring the Lord in their devotion. They have presumed upon the arrangement they've had with God. So here's the reality of what's going on, though. They do have wealth. They do have stability. But they have been exploiting people. They, they lack justice. Standards are gone politically, morally, um, economically, socially, religiously. These things are gone. They are religious people without God. They are ritualistic only. And what they're going to learn from Amos is that your tradition, your religious tradition that gives you an air of respectability is not sufficient and it does not please God. In fact, he abhors it if it is not connected to him. That they are a self-pleasing and self-justifying people and that their rituals do not replace their ethics. Right, So what's going on is they're going in and they're making sacrifices and they're doing the, the pagan ritual things. And then they're living however they want, right? stepping on whoever they have to step on to make money. And they're like, but things are good. We're on the gravy train, so God must be pleased. Otherwise, he would do something about it. And what's happening is they're acting religious and then during their week, their ethics are not affected at all. And so here's where we're going to pick up more here in Amos 1. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord. Right, so Amos just starts with, this isn't me speaking, this is God speaking. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and I will cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avin. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. And you're like, okay, I don't know. What? I'm not sure what just happened here. So what we have and what we're going to see repeated throughout chapter 1 is we have um, a poetic um, setup. And, and what Amos is going to say, he's going to start it the same way each time. He's going to, to say that there is a messenger, thus saith the Lord, that I'm speaking on behalf of God. And we're going to see that refra- refrain repeated. Next, he's going to make a general kind of accusation against the people. Then he's going to make a specific accusation against them. You're going to see this each time as he mentions a new nation. The fourth thing is he's going to then say, you are now judged. And it's irrevocable. He's then going to elaborate upon it. And then he's going to close it. And so look, we see this. Verse 3, thus saith the Lord. Right? He's giving this, the opening, the message. Then we see this general for three transgressions. Of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So, what's he going to do? He's going to judge them by sending fire upon the house of Hazel, and it will devour. Now, listen, we get bogged down, and we're not sure if it's talking about people, names, cities, countries. What's happening here? 
But this, uh, where I want us to start with, for the three transgressions of, and fill in the blank, and for four, what's going on there? This is, you, you see this in the Proverbs actually as well, that this listing component is meant to draw attention to the last thing listed. And what Amos is doing is he is changing a little bit. And he's like, I don't even need to list the first three things. What I'm telling you is, is they have sinned and they've sinned for a long time and they've sinned fully and completely. And here's the last thing they're brimming over. And this last thing has pushed it over the edge and now God is going to intervene. And I could list more, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you that there is plenty that God is displeased with. Here's what he's going to say now. And so he is showing a totality of issue. That this is not the sole thing. It's not even necessarily immediate. Amos is not tying these events necessarily to all specific. You just did this, now you're going to be destroyed. Some of this goes back generations. And he's saying, as a nation, as a people, you are doing these things. Right? You are sinning against God. And so... I want you to kind of follow the rhythm of what's going to happen here um, and and, and try to to hang with me. So we're going to pick up now in verse 6. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, so he's talking about the Philistines now, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have carried into exile, why? A whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will devour her strongholds. And I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnants of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have delivered up a whole people to Edom. And did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. And it will devour her strongholds. For thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Edom. And for four. I will not revoke the punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword. And cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman. And it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. We're almost done. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. And so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabah, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. One more. And thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Keroth. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the sound of the trumpet, and I will cut off the ruler from its mist, And I will kill all of its princes with him, says the Lord. All right. You are seeing a different side of God here. And what he is doing is he is walking through these nations. And he is saying, you have sinned against humanity. All right. You have sinned against humanity. 
Look at verse 3. The first one was Damascus. What have they done? They have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. What he's saying is Gilead was kind of an outer line part of Israel. That you have gone in and you have been barbaric. And you have just devastated the land. Right? Threshing is when you go through a field. Right? You have devastated the land and the people. You have been barbaric and brutal with the people. He's just talking about like this total annihilation. That they have gone far above what was necessary for them to do. He then goes to, to the Philistines in verse 6. To, it begins to talk about Gaza and these other cities that make up their area. What did they do? For the end of verse 6. Because they carried into exile a whole people. What he's saying is you've enslaved a people and just wiped them out. You carried them off and sold them into slavery. You delivered them to Edom. Edom was known for their slave trade. So he's like, you just took a people, all of them, old, young, not just the warriors, all of them, and you sold them into slavery. What about the next one? Verse 9, for Tyre, what did they do? They too delivered up a whole people to Edom, involved in the slave trade. Don't let that fall on deaf ears this morning. These people, right, are, are committing crimes against humanity. But what else? They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. He's saying, you haven't kept your word. That you have been self-serving. That you haven't done what you said you would do. You have broken your word. The next, we actually now get to Edom, who Edom has already been implicated in the last two. That there are people who are involved in the slave trade. But listen, at verse 11, he pursued his brother with the sword. He cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually. He kept his wrath forever. He's saying he has an unu- this country has an unusual wrath and anger and hatred and vengeance against people. When it says that he has pursued his brother with the sword, what we need to know here is Edom is the ancestral like, nation of Esau. And Esau's twin brother was Jacob. Right? Jacob goes with Israel, Esau goes with Edom, right? That they have this unique connection back to twin brothers. And Edom now has just perpetually hated and warred against Israel, has pursued them, right? Has not has cast off all pity, his anger has tore perpetually, he has kept his wrath forever. Then we look at the Ammonites. Verse 13. Why are they being punished? Because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. He's saying they have gone in and they have just killed people. Pregnant women. He's like they are barbaric and brutal for their own gain. For their own benefit. Not just that they were at war, but they have gone against the most vulnerable. And then Moab. Beginning of chapter 2. Because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Again, he's talking about you have committed crimes against the vulnerable. And he is, they, what they are known for is when they would go in, they, would, they liked to incinerate their victims, those that they've defeated, and use the lime that would come from their incineration to whitewash their buildings and their homes and things like this. It's just a way to say, we, what are you going to do about it? And so these nations have committed these horrific crimes 
against humanity. Listen, God is not saying, right, hey, the law that I gave Israel, you haven't kept it. He's saying you crush humanity. And you have done it for generations, for, for three transgressions, then four. You will be dealt with. If we were looking at a map, and, and we will show this next week, he is naming nations that encircle Israel. All right? So it would be like if, if we were doing a prophetic thing this morning, and it starts with, for three transgressions and for four, Borger, right? And we're like, that's right, Borger, right? <laughs> right? And then he goes, and for three transgressions and for four, White Deer. For three transgressions and for four, Skellytown, right? McLean, Lee Fours. And all of a sudden, <laughs> you start to look, right? And what is happening? You're going, yeah, get them! Except a bullseye is being drawn around Israel. And for all of history, to this point, Israel, when God has stepped into history and intervened, it has been on their behalf. And so you can just imagine, unless Amos's tone, right, if he's kind of baited them in, then they're going, yeah, the day of the Lord is happening. Finally, our enemies are going to be crushed. Look at all the horrible things they've done. Get them, God. And it's drawing a line around them. And they, they believed that the great and terrible day of the Lord was going to be a day where all of their enemies would be judged. And they would stand victorious and be applauded by God. And their kingdom would go forth. And this peace and the stability that they know would be forevermore. And they're saying, oh, it's happening. God's getting them. All the ones around us who have come across our borders, who have affected us, who have hurt us for generations. We have to turn back to verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Here's what is taking place and here's where Amos starts. The Lord is saying, no! I think that's the first time I've ever yelled in here, right? (laughs) But that's what he is saying, no! He's looking at them and saying, this is not what it's meant to be. Yes, look at these nations who have sinned against you. But you too are sinning. You have opposed me. You've said no to me. And so I'm saying no. What you are doing is not honoring to me. This religious activity is not pleasing to me. And it must stop. And so as he's getting the nations around them, what is happening and where we will go next week is the bullseye lands on them. The target is being sighted in, and it is upon them. That the Lord is fierce here. Right? When you hear a lion, a big cat roar, and you're near, your your spine should shiver. It should send a chill up you that something is about to happen here. That a pouncing is about to take place. It's not just against the nation, but the bullseye is now on them that God is moving and the great and terrible day of the Lord is not going to be as they had thought where everyone else will be wiped out and the dust will clear and they will be standing that the Lord is saying there is an expectation upon them but it's also upon you and you think that your privilege in being the chosen people of God means you get to do whatever you want you're wrong with privilege becomes responsibility 
and accountability. And you're not going to be protected. You're called to a, uh, to a standard that you have not met. And what Amos is showing us is, is he's naming these nations. Right? As he's talking about the Phoenicians. As he's talking about the Philistines and these other nations. What he's saying is, I am their God. And I am your God. I am the universal creator God. And my standard goes for all. I am sovereign and I am in control. And my expectations are what will be met. He's reminding us that he sees and that he is aware. That nothing is hidden from him. Church, that's for us this morning too. That nothing is, nothing is hidden. He sees it. He knows it. And for some of us, what we have done is we're like, we're on sin one or sin two or sin three of the list, right? As we're, if we're looking um, poetically this morning. And we're like, things are easy. Comfortable. Good. Just like these nations have done for generations. And then the Lord says, and now it is brims. And judgment will come. And they, right, as they have done this for generations, they're like, nobody can touch us. And now God is saying, I've seen it. I'm aware of it. You've done it. And now here comes judgment. If we remove ourselves too much from Amos, right? It's like we're just trying to study the book and go, okay, like, do we understand what happened? That's neat historically. When did all this take place? Church, we've got to see that this, we are, right? This, this is our story too. That God has an expectation for us that we would rightly reflect his character. And Israel has failed this. And they're, 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 they have been far more comfortable with ease and luxury than they have with justice. And they have, they have enslaved and hurt. They have been religious without God. And all of these things are still, we are still vulnerable to them as well. And God is saying, I see what's taking place in actuality in your heart, what you're doing, what you're not doing, nothing is hidden. And so the question for us this morning, the question that would begin to happen as the, the hearers are hearing this from Amos is, is who can stand? When God roars from heaven, he is saying, hey, no more. And there should be this moment for us this morning as we're looking at, hey, can we go back to the New Testament, Right? Because God's a little more chill. That we, we have to look at this side of him. And understand that we cannot stand before him either except for the cross. Right? That it was at the cross where Jesus bore the lion's roar. Where he took the wrath of God on our, on our behalf in our place. Because we would have been devoured and destroyed and no more. And so we are in a different place than the people of Israel and Judah now. And that we know that it has been received by King Jesus. And that we now can, with, with gladness of heart, have access to God. But we cannot, in light of that, forget that God sees and He knows and He cares. And the day of the Lord is yet to come. Where judgment will occur. And there will be those who will be standing before Him and, and He will say, You're mine. And Jesus has taken the wrath for you. And there will be others who will be judged and they will stand there with no defense. That the great and terrible day of the Lord is when he will come. And it will be a day of 
glory and worship for some, and it will be a day of fear and terror and judgment for others. And so let's not run too quick past and say, God, Jesus, I'm good. Because the people in, in Amos's day thought they had God too. And they were actually full of just religious ritual and tradition. And because of blessing and ease and comfort and security, they thought God must have been pleased with it. And what they're going to find out is that he wasn't. And he's going to just walk them through. Why not? Right? So that's, we're just kind of setting the, the table this morning. And that's where we're headed in Amos. Um, to encourage you, we're, we are going to take big chunks. We're not going to be in Amos long. We're going to look at this, these, these big chunks of Scripture um, and let the lion of heaven speak. And so would we, would we let it rest on us this week? Would we be reminded that we need the cross far more than we think we do? Because we think too little of our sin and too highly of ourselves. And so that means often we think too little of Jesus. And so we need him to reveal himself to us as God reveals this side of his character. We're going to look at divine judgment. We're going to look at um, social injustice and the lack of justice that was taking place. Um, In in every realm of life, we're going to see that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, that he is the universal God. All of these kind of themes are going to be developed as we walk through Amos. But this morning, would we sit in the fact that the line of heaven roars and that judgment is not over and that our peace is found in Christ and Christ alone. And if you don't know Jesus, then the lion's roar, right, is spine chilling to you because you have no defense and yet jesus says like i'll take you back to the father i will he will no longer be this fearsome thing he will be father who is holy god if we trust if we rest if we follow him let's pray